This is episode number 300. What can we learn from history with Gary Hoover? Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to all of our listeners to our upcoming weekly conversation called Survive to Thrive, Live the Story You Create. What this is, if this is your first time hearing about it, is a series of conversations that take place every single Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, hosted through LinkedIn and Facebook Live, where we explore the connection between one's personal narrative and the topics of grief, appreciation, gratitude, and many other topics. If you feel that this is of interest to you, please consider visiting our website at overcomingodds.today where you'll be able to find the latest details regarding our upcoming conversation, as well as an archive of all the previous ones. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our show, and that is if our show has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our work by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. It's fascinating to live in this world. And like I was telling you earlier, I'm really grateful that you and I are able to connect because this concept of history and in particular, how history has impacted my life. You know, I've been through a fair share of hardships and challenges. Of my I read own. your story. Very <laughs> interesting. Yeah, man. You yeah, covered a lot of miles. Oh, I, sh- I sure have. And I have hopefully many more miles to go and, and many more places to visit. But I've, I've really been curious about this concept of history for a variety of reasons, but the primary one of all is I've really tried to understand how much of history or what can we learn from history in order to be able to better predict the patterns moving forward. And the element that I've been genuinely curious in is the one of personal development, and that is what people can become, even in the quote-unquote worst of circumstances that it might have been brought into And so I'm curious for you, and maybe this is the best way that we can even kick off this conversation to begin with, is when you first started to study history to begin with, why did you do it? What inspired you to do it? What were you able to see through history that other subjects simply weren't able to tell you about life, who you are, or some of these other things that might have inspired you to begin with? Uh, Yeah, well, my path is probably a a little bit unique. So I grew up in uh, uh, Anderson, Indiana, which was a General Motors factory town. It was a city of about 60,000 people and 27,000 worked for GM. It was uh, General Motors' biggest um, operation outside of Michigan, I'm pretty sure. And I know you spent a lot of years in Ann Arbor, which is just a couple hours north. Michigan was huge, I think, with it. Oh, oh, they were everywhere. Sure, they were in Flint and they were in Pontiac and of course, Ford and Dearborn. And um, oh, yeah, the auto industry still Michigan is the, you know, powerhouse. But uh, I grew up in this town and the teachers uh, had great history teachers. And you're learning about the Civil War, who won what battle and who lost and what their strategies were. You're learning about kings, queens, uh, uh, governors, presidents, you know, how did they, what were their strategies? How did they make decisions? Do people follow them or not? Why did they follow them? Did they like to follow them? And it was all fascinating. It was really about leadership and management. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's really cool. But I held up my hand and said, well, what about General Motors? You know, it's this huge thing. I mean, it was like life itself in that city when I was growing up. It's, it's no longer there. There's zero General Motors employees now. So it had a much bigger effect than I ever thought it would on or, you know, it, it didn't turn out the way we all would have guessed back in the 1950s and 60s. But anyway, nobody could really answer my questions about, well, who started General Motors? Why did they start it? Who runs it today? How does it work, you know? And, um, uh, you know, the teachers would say, oh, they make Chevrolet, Pontiac, Buick, Oldsmobile, Cadillac. I said, well, we all, we all know that. 
But what about, you know, the same kind of things they were talking about with uh, presidents and kings and queens. I want to know about General Motors and, you know, where did it come from? And, and then I discovered there's a great American business magazine, Fortune, Fortune magazine. Every year they list the 500 biggest companies in America called the Fortune 500. And I was in a newsstand with my family, my brother and sister and everything, and looking at magazines. And there, I see that magazine and the biggest company in the world was General Motors. It was 50% bigger than any other company on earth. Uh, most profitable, best run corporation in the world. And, and, I, and I went to my parents and said, you got me, got to get me a subscription in that magazine. It's so cool. And they thought, man, you're <laughs> weird. You know, why, why don't you go play basketball like a normal Indiana kid? And I got my subscription and two months later, I entered the seventh grade. So I started reading Fortune when I was 12 years old and trying to understand because these big corporations, it's like nobody really understood them. Nobody really wanted to talk about them, not in any real depth. You know, you knew this company made this soap or this and that or Coca-Cola company or whatever, Ford, General Motors. But nobody really seemed to understand them. But this magazine did or the writers tried. And then a few months after that, the man who really built General Motors, a man named Alfred P. Sloan Jr., he wrote a book. Uh, Bill Gates said, if you're only going to read one book about business, it's the book you got to read called My Years with General Motors. And he tells a story of how he took over General Motors when it was very troubled, almost went broke in 1921. And then he put together a group of people and he built this great company. He and a lot of other people, a lot of help. He didn't do it alone. And uh, so I really immersed in that. And by studying where General Motors came from, how that man thought, because even though he had retired in the 1950s and 60s, um, his ideas were still so present and still are today at General Motors. And so I really began to understand this great company and in many ways uh, understand it a lot better than most other people did. And then as I went through life, I you know, became an entrepreneur. I worked for big companies. I became an entrepreneur mainly in retailing. I love retail stores. Everywhere I went along the way to really learn how do you do it? You know, what are the right ideas? I started studying the biographies of the great retailers and ones that have been dead a hundred years. But as I always say, there's nothing that matters in business that's new. You know, the techniques change, you know, whether we were using a telegraph or now we're using Zoom, you know, that's new. But the basics, the important things don't change. And so, and, and then there are a lot of ideas that just get recycled. You know, that somebody had a great idea in 1880 and then it was a fad and it was over by 1900. And I say, well, wait a minute, that's almost just like Uber is today or whatever. So these ideas, they disappear and then they come back. And, and you really, you can't, Steve Jobs said, you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect and look, looking backwards. Winston Churchill said, the further backward you look, the further forward you can see. Because the things that matter, demographics, things like that, that really underlie our economy, our politics, everything, those are long-term trends. I mean, you know, we know how many 90-year-olds will live in Austin, Texas 30 years from now, you know, very accurately, you know, whereas we really don't have a clue where COVID's going to be in a year, where the stock market's going to be tonight, who's going to win the Super Bowl in January, you know, all these things we talk about all the time, you, you don't have a clue, whereas we really do know uh, Peter Drucker, the greatest management writer of all time, said the, the most important future to understand is a future that's already here. And what he meant was the trends are already emerging. You can already see them. If you use your imagination, you can think about where does Zoom lead next? What might it be like in five years? But it really comes from looking at how did, it, how did we get to where we are? How did we go from radio to television uh, to a, um, a VHS to DVDs? to streaming, you know, I mean, it's, it's these, and all those things, they build on each other. Now, very few inventions are pure inventions. They're usually, oh, here's two other things somebody else did, and I'm going to combine them in a new way. So every, every, everything is the accumulation of our past. And uh, I know your amazing story, and you are, in my mind, the accumulation of all your experiences. And, and right now is yet another one. But, you know, we just, <laughs> I've been around 70 years and just piling up all those experiences and, 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 and everything comes into, you know, the church I grew up in and my parents um, uh, and, and my school and, you know, every place I worked, every boss I had, every mistake I made, hopefully learn from. 
And so, um, and then I'm also, I'm an optimist and, and, you know, I run into challenges. I actually made money on my first two businesses and lost it all on the third one. So I went from being a millionaire to like, you know, having my car repossessed, you know. So I've, I've seen cycles. Nothing as intense as what you've been through, but, um, and how you deal with failure. I teach classes in entrepreneurship and I talk about how do you cope with that? How do you, whether it's losing all your money or there's so many things that can go wrong in life, you know. And, and how do you come back? And, and I, I get, I draw great strength from reading the stories of these great leaders of the past and find out, oh gosh, they went through the same thing. Or, you know, they had all these tragedies hit their life too. And, and some ran away from home. I, I just wrote the biography of a guy ran away from home at 12 and uh, lived in the streets of Chicago as a street urchin. And then became, he, he invented Hertz Rent-A-Car and he invented yellow taxis, which are all over the world and became a very wealthy man, but, you know, scratched his, will drop out of the fifth grade and scratched his way. And, and that gives me inspiration. So there's a, a long answer. <laughs> How do you deal with failure? How do you learn from it? And, and the other part of that question that really got me curious as you were sharing, for me, one of the things that I started to understand in these recent years, when it comes to this concept of overcoming, so to speak, is that it's mm -hmm. not necessarily about finding ways to eliminate some of these things from happening again because i don't in my opinion i don't think it's possible i don't think it's possible to fully eliminate depression stress anger all these things if anything what i've learned what is possible is to develop a set of tools and skills that can help me cope with it next time it comes around same thing that you just described with the three businesses you might have started your fourth one and you might have repeated the same thing of the second one or the third who knows mm -hmm. I've been in plenty of those situations before where I felt like I did the right thing based on previous experience, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. it turned out to be completely different. And so I'm curious, kind of from your lens and everything that you've learned to this point, how do you approach failure to begin with that allows you the ability to learn from it and not necessarily shy away from it? Yeah, well, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have uh, a different perception of risk. And um, I don't know if that's a personality trait. I, I believe, I don't think you're born with all this stuff. I think most of what you are, you, you learned from someone else or parents or people mm -hmm. around you and so on. Um, but um, do you think I we know, don't uh, recognize risk? With, what's that? A risk. Yeah. Um, the thing is, and there are books about, oh, entrepreneurs, they, they like risk and they're big chance takers. They're gamblers. It's all nonsense. Uh, entrepreneurs see risk in a different way. So my first business I started was the first big chain of giant bookstores. And later Barnes and Noble bought it. It's how they got in the giant bookstore business. But I remember when I quit my, I was a young vice president of a big corporation. I was 30 years old. And um, my mom's like, you're crazy to quit. You know, I worked for a big department store. It's a company that became Macy's. And you're crazy to quit. You know, you got that great job and you just got a raise and a promotion and you're going to start this business. Nobody knows if it'll work. Well, I had worked in the department store business for years and I realized that industry had peaked, that its best days were behind it, just from understanding the industry, studying its history, studying its evolution. On the other hand, I had studied all the trends in retailing. I, I knew I was sitting there in the 1970s trying to foresee the 80s and 90s. And I knew that the demand for books was going to rise in the United States uh, because of the education level of the baby boom, the increased spending power of the baby boom as they aged and had families and they went up in their careers. Um, and, uh, and I knew that this idea of a big store with a big selection and low prices, which was invented at Toys R Us, that that had broader applicability. So I knew that giant bookstores were going to happen, whether I did it or not. Now, I was the only person in the world, apparently, that knew that, okay? But I knew that. And I also knew the department stores had peaked. So for me, I was taking the low-risk thing. It's just like General Motors and the electric car. They dabbled in it and dabbled in it, and they tried it, and then they killed the project, and the new CEO would come in and kill it. They weren't uh, uh, committed to it, and they thought they were doing the safe thing. Let's just stick with big gas guzzlers. You know, this was years ago. And... They thought they were doing the safe thing, but they were doing the risky thing. They were doing that company went bankrupt after, you know, 100 years of most amazing company on earth. It went bankrupt. Now it's back from the dead, but it went through bankruptcy. 
uh, Tesla, Elon Musk, he sees the future differently. I, I can assure you, he does not think Tesla was a big risk. You know, it's not like gamblers. So you have this because you do your research, you study the industry, you understand the dynamics and all that. But going back thing, how do you deal with the with the failure and and the all that? To me, in my in my life, it's two pretty straight up things. One is have a sense of humor, always be able to laugh at yourself, and and hopefully those around you, and uh, <laughs> hopefully they laugh back. And then good good friends, good friends. You know, when you go when you go from being a millionaire to being broke, you you find out who your friends are. You know, and. I never would have made it. I never would have made it without good friends. I never would have made it without a sense of humor. Probably didn't hurt to have a couple of dogs back then. They're all in doggy heaven now. But um, uh, so, no, no, your support group, um, you know, a, a line uh, I'm sure you've heard, or if you haven't, you like it, is you are the average of the three people you spend the most time with. So if you spend your time with people that are envious, with people that are greedy, that with people that are uh, depressed, that are whatever, you know, all those negative emotions. Um, for, for me, all the emotions, uh, it sounds too businessy, but it's about return on investment. So if I'm jealous of you and you're rich and I'm not, how does that pay off for me, right? Or if I'm pissed off at you, I'm angry at you for whatever. Well, that just makes my life worse makes life worse for you and it makes life worse for everybody around me. I've had friends who are just upset at everything, right? Always angry. Well, their, their spouse's lives are miserable. Their kids' lives are miserable, you know, and their own lives are miserable. And it's yeah. just, I know it's not easy for everybody, but to be optimistic, uh, to believe in the future from studying the past, uh, to understand that the humanity has made incredible progress. You know, I'm a real believer. There's now a field called progress studies. And if you look at how much richer society is than when I was born 70 years ago and all over the world, including the United States, if you look at the, the reduction in poverty globally, it's unbelievable and, and was unpredicted. We're way ahead of where the UN thought we would be in eliminating poverty worldwide. China alone has lifted a billion people out of poverty. You know, and and India now, you know, hundreds of millions and it'll be a bigger country than China soon enough. Africa, which sub-Saharan Africa really looked grim for decades. If you study all the data, it's like it's hopeless. Well, now there are signs. There are some countries that are getting ahead of everything. I think Botswana may be doing well, but it's taken a long time. But now some people believe Africa is the great future of the world. Or, you know, we'll have a the next 50, 100 years, we'll see a big rise in the middle Mexico one of the fastest growing middle classes in the world. It used to be just rich people and just poor people. It still has big inequality, but a heck of a lot less than it was 30, 40 years ago when I started traveling there a lot. So, you know, that optimism, you can't make it without optimism. And, and if I knew right now, oh, the world's going to end tomorrow, right? The meteor's going to hit us. Or the sun would you tell me? Close. What would I do about it? Well, I might, <laughs> I might, you know, but what am I going to do about it? You know, I'm going to just go ahead and, go ahead and dig my own grave and jump in. You know, I mean, you, pessimism is like pointless and, and yet people get caught up in it. And, and, and I understand, man, I've had bad days. I have days when I couldn't get out of bed all day and you, know, you lose all your money or when my dog died or, you know, everybody has them, but it's not so much what happens to you as to how you react to it, how you mm -hmm. deal with it, how you cope with it. Do you think optimism is learned? I, I guess so, in the sense that I pretty much think everything is learned, you know, when they get in this nature versus nurture battle and water. I, I don't I don't believe in that much of anything comes through your genes. And and this is going to sound a little weird because I'm a real like science and fact based person. Everything I do, all 60,000 books, they're nonfiction books. You know, I love the reality. But um yeah, your bone structure, yeah, right. It comes from your parents, uh, you know, how big your nose is or whatever, you know. Okay, I, I, that you can see. But I, it's just for me to think that, oh, when you were born, you were locked into either being stupid or smart or being happy or unhappy. I, it's, even if it were true, even if, you know, I wouldn't want to believe it, right? Because it's, it's not a healthy thing to believe in. 
I, I believe, in, and, you, and you know, you've studied all this stuff. You're going to find people who have the worst possible lives who turn themselves into great success. I've been out on the world speaking circuit and some of the motivational speakers, you know, I saw one guy has no arms, no legs, and he's a torso. And he, he does speaking all over the world. He probably makes several hundred thousand here. He jumps up on a table and freaks people out by moving too close to the table. They all think he's going to fall off. And you know, man, I'm like, and, and the other thing about being down is I don't care how bad things get. When I lost all my money or the dog died or whatever, um, my, my parents passed away. No matter how bad things are, all you have to do is open your eyes and see somebody has it so much worse than you do, uh, right? I mean, you, you never, even in a wealthy country like the United States, it doesn't, you know, okay, I lost my parents when I was in my 60s. Well, you, you know, you lost your parents before you were 12, right? Lost in the broader sense, you know? Um, and so, you know, hey, I see the guy with no arms and no legs and I gotta be happy. I don't care if I was living in the streets or sleeping in my car, you know? I gotta feel like I'm blessed. That's one of the things that I've become even more appreciative of is having traveled through the brief number of countries that I have to this point is how many things that I took for granted while living in the States, even the basics, oh, yeah. starting from having a dryer to dry your clothes. Many of the places here, they dry them on a clothing rack. Oh, now, yeah. you, you well, think all over about the world. It then, yeah, you think about it and it's like, okay, that's easy enough. But at the same time, it's not always true because it's, much of it's dependent on the weather. Some weeks it could rain for a week straight, and no, the dryer was a big was a big invention. <laughs> oh yeah, no, 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 it changed people's lives. And oh, you know, you go to India and people are cooking with, um, you know, a cattle dung for you know to burn to cook with, and doesn't smell very good. And oh yeah, oh yeah, no, no, you get into the really poor countries, and um, but yes, I mean, though in the United States, in so many ways, we live in such an insulated way. And, and even when you look at poverty in the U.S., you know, all, a lot. And I don't I don't want to um, sound like I don't feel for those people and, and want to help and all that. And I have done a lot of trying to help a lot of ways over my life. But people who are poor in the U.S. would be wealthy in a lot in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, the number of people that have cell phones and televisions that still are, you know, poor in the U.S. And, and that are well-fed. You know, I used to be on the board of directors, Whole Foods Market. So not well-fed in terms of maybe great nutrition, but in terms of do you have enough calories to, you know, eat? Um, you know, hey, you can, you can eat a Taco Bell for $4 a day or when you move to Mexico, you really can eat for about $10 a day and eat pretty well, you know, so in some ways, I don't mean this to sound bad, but in some ways, the U.S. doesn't really know what poverty is. <laughs> hey, go, go hang out in some of those other countries. Go to Haiti, not that far away, but, you know, total disaster from bad leaders and a lot of issues. Whereas Dominican Republic right next door is done a lot better. So leadership really matters. Compare South Korea and North Korea, compare yeah. Colombia, Venezuela. Leadership yeah. really matters. Yeah, I think it could make or break communities in certain situations. I, I've also found interesting that when you even talk about this concept of being able to survive off of a couple of dollars a day, I have a friend of mine, she lives in, and actually a cousin as well, they live in Thailand, and, and there you can survive <laughs> 5 or $10 off of relatively good good food. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of it is street food. Oh, and, yeah. But at the same time, I think what it made me think of is how – so much of my world, I truly didn't know. And I'm not blaming for myself for not knowing because others, I just didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. But what I have experienced is that through learning from other people's stories, reading books and whatever else, that I was able to put myself in these situations where I could see another person through their lens. And I don't think I could fully ever understand what they've been through. But maybe well, what I could do is I could relate in certain situations. Like you were mentioning, I, I've been in those shoes. I, I've been in situations where I couldn't pay rent and I had to find other ways to do it. And, and I had to ask for help when really asking for help was probably one of the hardest things for me to do. I mean, there were probably two things that I was afraid of. Asking for help, 
not public speaking at the time, but I would say asking for help in death and asking for help was even higher than dying. So that, <laughs> that creates yeah, a little yeah. bit of a perspective, but I think what that's one of the things that I've ultimately have learned when it comes to this history, going back to how we even started this conversation is that I believe there are lessons that are evident. Now, then the question for me is, am I open enough to receiving those lessons? And then from there, am I open enough to acting upon them, which was going to be another question that I had for you. And that is in your experience and everything that you've been through to this point, what do you believe is the fine line between just gathering information and then acting upon that information? Is there a fine line to begin with? Oh, boy. Well, you know, I, I would say I'd add another layer in terms of we're in this inundated flood of information yeah. and, and opinions, you know, politics. Everybody's got their opinion. They love this person or they hate this politician, you know. And obviously the U.S. is, is pretty split on that right now. But we've always been somewhat split. Um, so I, I say the first thing is, as we say, separating the wheat from the chaff. How do you know what's important? And I was teaching a Zoom class the other day, and we talked about that at some length. And for me, in anything you study, it's first to build a foundation of understanding. Uh, a friend, he'd read the latest hot book on economics and the, uh, government spending, fiscal policy, all that jazz. And he's all excited about it. Well, the book, in my not so humble opinion, is just all BS, just nonsense. But it's a bestseller, right? And I, you, I said, you can't under, you shouldn't even be reading that unless you first read Keynes, the guy who came up with the fiscal theory or, you know, the most important name in it, unless you've read Hayek, the fellow who argued with him and had another opinion um, and who I'm more uh, partial to. Um, when you study a field, first study its history. Why, why do we have sociology? Who dreamed it up? You know, why do we have maps? I don't care what it is. The first thing I want to know is the history. Why, how did this come about? Why do we have banks? Who invented that idea? Who invented the idea of the corporation? Who invented the automobile? I don't care what it is, a technology, uh, a human thing. Who invented, you know, soap operas? You know, I've looked into that and everything. And then how did they evolve? How did they get to where they are? And then, and then you can read that new bestseller, whether it's full of nonsense or not. And you have a perspective, you have a foundational understanding. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, as an entrepreneur, I mean, the, the number one question my students have all, and I've mentored thousands all, all over the world, 30, 40 countries, um, is how do you know when to, to, to start the company? A lot of these people already work for a big company and have a good paying job. And they're spouses or their significant others are saying oh that's too risky don't risk it let's stay with the big company um the people start at all levels some are in college or high school and just drop out and start a company but still how do you know when and i said no i said look nobody can tell you when to do it i say it's like jumping off a diving board for the first time into a pool you just you get to this point where in your gut you know it's the right time to take action on what you've learned and, and you do it. And, and in my case, it's really from doing the research. My businesses, I, including little ones and I nine companies over the course of my life, nine little, nine or some got bigger. But, you know, I did three to seven years of research in every field before I went into it. So by the time the whole bookstore thing, by the time I made the decision to quit my good job and, oh, you know, not do what my mother thought was best for me, I, I knew you with me. I knew that this bookstore thing had great potential. I didn't just think it. I knew it, you know, in my heart. And so when I'm at that point, then nothing could stop me. You know, I had to take action. But I spent seven years researching it, studying it, talking to everybody I met, every stranger at every party, every stranger on an airplane. Where do you buy books? Why do you go to that bookstore? What do you like about bookstores? If you ran a bookstore, what would you do differently? I just for seven years soaked up all the information I could get. So I really, really understood the bookstore business, even though I'd never been in it. But I love books and I love stores. So, but so, you know, when, when to, you know, take action in terms of starting an enterprise, which could be a nonprofit, you know, because I've been now I have a, a nonprofit, um, the American Business History Center. It's a 501c3, you know, nonprofit. But it's no different than starting a company. You have oh, yeah. an idea, you think the world would be better with it, and then you do what you can to make it 
real. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I realized actually, and, and a big lesson that I learned from my mom is when her and I were talking about business, she said that so much of the ability for one to be successful in the, in business is the ability to do research. Yeah. To do quality uh, research. Knew what she was talking about. And so I, at the time I remember hearing it and I probably took bits and pieces of it. Mm-hmm. But then after a while, when I actually got into business, I just keep referring back to that conversation I had with her and so much of it. I mean, there's a lot of truth there. The, I, th- I think the one thing that I have learned from research and, and going back to kind of what is that fine line between depending on history and then just taking the chance forward, I think you're spot on. I think it is a gut feeling because I think the gut feeling, at least in my opinion, it's that connection between whatever's here and whatever's out there. And that is whatever's currently here and then the future. And some people may understand it and others not. I've received a fair share of everything that you've described from people. You're crazy. Don't naysayers do are everywhere. Yeah, naysayers it's are so everywhere. easy to be negative. Oh, it'll it never work. You know, it you're a stupid person. It's so easy to do that. It is. It is. And that's, and that's the thing that I've realized. And that's why I asked you earlier whether or not you believed in optimism being a learned skill and what i've also learned i think when it comes to much of what we're talking about is so much of it is truly just the perspective that i choose to attitude attitude attitude. and and that's that was going to be my other thing that i asked you in however many years that you've experienced much of this life how much of it do you think truly boils down to the daily attitude that you choose to wake up? Oh, it, 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 it's everything. I mean, yeah. I mean, when I talk about optimism and not getting caught up in negative emotions and not hanging out with people that bring you down and instead hang out with people that bring you up, you hang out with supportive people and, and um, uh, avoid the naysayers. And, you know, it gets complex. I raise money from venture capitalists. And so there yeah. you, you basically drive straight on into like hundreds of naysayers. They're all saying, <laughs> oh, it's all wrong. It'll never work. And it takes a while to build up that shell and, you know, not leave the room crying, you know, <laughs> or almost cry. One thing I go back on research. One thing I do when I talk to a lot of uh, people of all ages, especially young people, is I think they can do all the research online. And while that is great, I'm on the Census Bureau's website almost every day looking at data, demographics, population trends, where people are moving, all this stuff. Um, 70, maybe 70% of all this stuff in my 60,000 books is not online. And people don't realize that. There is so much wisdom and so much stuff that is not online that is in books. And, and older books, a lot of the books I have are from the 1920s and 1950s, 1890s. And, and I wrote a book, The Lifetime Learner's Guide to Reading and Learning, which I go through like my 160 favorite books I recommend, most of which nobody's ever heard of, a lot of them. And I talk about how I learn efficiently. I'm a real slow reader, but I spend about a half hour with each book and, and I understand it and I remember it but it's not speed reading. It's about slowing down. So people have found that real valuable. It's on my website, how I digest a book in 15 to 30 minutes, I think it's called, but it's also in this book I wrote that's on Amazon. And so, uh, hey, don't just count on Wikipedia, you know? Use that. I use all that every day. I'm on Wikipedia, like, I don't know, I bet you 40 times a day, always looking up stuff. But man, what's in books? Because they're under copyright, you know, you can't. They aren't all digitized by Google, you know, and mm-hmm. archives.org or whatever. Um, and um, so um, don't overlook that. Libraries, bookstores, and, you know, they're coming back. You know, print books are doing fine. They're going faster than ebooks are now. They've survived the ebook. Uh, ebooks are still important and big, but uh, printed books and, and a lot of the bookstores, a lot of independent bookstores are having good, have done well. well excluding covid which of course was awful for most retailers and and everybody else but um so people should go hang out in the library someday go wander the aisles just wander the aisles at a big barnes and noble bookstore just wander the newsstand and it'll open your eyes to so much look for magazines you have no interest in and flip through them and just see because because uh you mentioned about uh, about how hard it is to really you can like empathize or have some understanding of people, but you can't really be in their shoes. 
And, and that's true. I've used in speeches about how it would be impossible for the average American to know what it was like to grow up in Afghanistan. That's it's true. just impossible. And, and many other countries as well, just impossible. On the other hand, like as a, as a retailer, my whole goal every day is to put myself in the shoes of my customers. Now, most of my customers didn't grow up in Afghanistan and running a big bookstore. Most of your customers were on, uh, on average, relatively well-educated, often affluent Americans. So maybe not always that different from people already knew, you know, but still to put yourselves, okay, this person wants to buy astrology books and know their mm -hmm. sign. The next person wants to know who won the World Series in 1948. The next person wants to know how to quit smoking. The next person wants to know what are the big tourist sites to see in Greece. So when you're doing a bookstore, you, you meet all God's children, is the way I always phrased it. And it's wonderful. I love meeting people and finding, but it takes a lot of corporate executives. They're staying at the fanciest hotels. They're flying around in private jets and there's nothing wrong with that. They can have that if they want, but they're cut off from like reality. A lot of our politicians, like whatever is it, 80%, I think of the American people shop in Walmart regularly, not just once a while, regularly. How, how many senators have been in a Walmart recently, right? They're so out of touch, you know, they've got security guards and they go around in their limousines and, you know, and, and, and it happens to corporate executives too, which is why I'm delighted when I meet or read about a, a CEO of a big company who's really in touch, who's like out there, who, who gets into Walmart, who, you know, at least even if they don't eat at McDonald's, goes in there to look around. I, I teach classes in observational learning. We go to a shopping center and everybody has an assignment. What kind of watches are people wearing? Are they watch wearing watches at all? What kind of shoes are they wearing? What kind of cars do they drive? How fast do they walk? And I've done that all my life. And they don't teach that in schools. They don't teach that in business schools. But just by watching people, I, I yeah. went a deep dive in the museum industry and I went to 600 museums all over the world. And I would watch how do people uh, how do families walk differently from couples from individuals how does it vary by race and by age and what exhibits do they go to first and i went to all the industry conventions like nobody in the whole industry was looking at all that stuff and nobody really was putting themselves in the shoes of those people coming in those museums and and in many ways the museums are behind the times like they don't have long hours they're closed in the evenings and people have free time in other ways, they're very advanced, some of the displays they do. But coming out of retailing, man, hey, we got to be open long hours. We got to do what the customer wants or we're going to be out of business. It's too competitive to just caught up in your own worldview. Although I will say, starting companies like that bookstore chain, it was a blend of what I realized the world wanted. When I talked to all these book lovers and everything, what people would love in a bookstore. But it also was my dream bookstore. So it's an odd thing. It's an odd combination of being introverted and extroverted, of being really interested. What are you, what kind of bookstore do you want, Oleg? Mm -hmm. And, oh, well, that's a lot like the kind of bookstore I want, or it isn't. And that's a very, you know, how you get it to where it's really, because to build a business, you got to love it. I mean, oh, money yeah. is not enough. The passion, you got to have the passion and willing to sacrifice and do all this crap, you know? But it's got to work for somebody else, too. It can't be just for you. It's got to make somebody else's life better or you don't have a business. Do you think it all starts with you, though? As far as so I'll give you an example. When I was first starting Overcoming Odds, I chose to take a slightly different route compared to what people were saying around me. And that's I was taught the um, I think it's the lean startup model where you have to go out there and you have to find the ideal customer and you create his persona against uh, for them and blah, blah, blah. Well, I chose to go the complete opposite and I chose to become the client of my own work. And so when I was starting, I chose to answer myself the same question that I would ask of someone else. And that is, what is what difference is it making? How is it making you feel? Blah, blah, blah. And I realized that four or five years later, it worked out because it's been able to relate to other people of other journeys and lives. You found an audience. The audience found you. Exactly. And and I'm curious from your lens as well, is that it, it, do both approaches work or does one approach lead towards one way or is one approach not necessarily better than the other? Yeah. But like right. what's the difference between the two? Because I've real I've built 
models based mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. both. And I realized that the latest one that I'm in right now, where I chose to be the client of my own work, gave me significantly deeper understanding about what I was building because that I was not basing all these things off of a hypothetical individual. Because the one thing that I have learned to this point is people change. And so whatever the problem might be for Alex one day may not be a problem for him tomorrow Mm -hmm. or a week Mm -hmm. from now. So define that to be true within your own experiences, like starting from within and building outward. And then just knowing that out of however many people there are, what closing in on 8 billion, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Out of all those people, there's gotta be other people who can relate to you. Yes. And, and with the internet, all of a sudden you can reach global audiences inexpensively which you couldn't do 40 years ago, you know? If you had some idea and wanted to talk about it, you could create a community group or a church or something in your community, but it would take you forever to reach New York City and LA. And now, of course, you know, hey, I I collect old stuff, collectible stuff. I go on eBay and hey, there's a dealer in the Ukraine that's got what I'm looking for. You know, it's so changed. What I would say, that general idea though, there are so many diverse ways to, to create stuff and develop stuff. And, and industries vary a lot. So a lot of the people I mentor are technologists, university professors and stuff that have an idea. Well, when you talk about lean startup, a lot of times they say, well, I've got this technology, hardware or software, and, but I'm not sure who can use it, you know, because they aren't out in the marketplace, you know? And, and so for them, a lot of times it's, well, let's see if these people want it or see if those people want it. So, you know, a lot of that stuff, test the market, go out and ask 100 potential customers, would you like this? It has tremendous value in the right places. On the other hand, what you're doing with the podcast, you know, that's, that's over here in the arts and humanities and creativity. So you got authors, you got movie makers. Um, I would make a case, maybe even architects mm-hmm. as, as artists. But, you know, there have been some great movies made that, Nobody asked for, nobody wanted. The person that made it had this vision that I just got to do this. And the friends told them they were crazy. And then they create whatever, Lawrence of Arabia, my favorite movie, Steven Spielberg's favorite movie too, or whatever. And the same with books, novels, you know, they, they write for themselves, right? And totally for themselves. And one guy, there was a famous book, Confederacy of Dunces, and he tried to get big publishers to take it and everybody turned him down and he committed suicide. And then his mm. mother sold it to the LSU, Louisiana State University Press. They published it. It became a national, huge bestseller and a big New York publisher then picked it up. So, you know, like his estate became wealthy, but the poor guy gave up. Uh, the guy that created FM radio killed himself too, gave up. Nobody would buy into it. Uh, the chicken soup for the soul. They yeah. had, I want to say, over 200 publishers turn them down for that book. And now they've sold, oh, it's at least 300 million copies oh, yeah. or something in 40 languages. Um, but, but the arts, the podcast, uh, you know, hey, if, if you had gone just to what you wanted and what came solely from you and done this podcast and five years later you had three viewers, mm-hmm. you would probably give up on it, you know, but you didn't what it was that came from you so like that novel or like that movie or like that work of art i mean in that that realm of creativity and i believe great businesses kind of blend the two look at apple i you know uh, steve jobs you say i don't listen to customers just listen to myself well a lot of that's kind of nonsense i can assure you people at apple were testing and saying what about this type and this plastic but at the same time it clearly was in many ways a personal vision of steve jobs to make computers friendly, to make computer computers more uh, user friendly and easy, and all that, and um, so and yet he was copying. You know, he got the whole idea of the mouse and the and the touch interface, the GUI and everything from Xerox, and and then he did it. And then Bill Gates, you know, went to Windows and he did it. Uh, so it's all we're all copying, you know, at some level. But no, no, no. I think in in what you did. You would not be doing the co- podcast anymore if there weren't people that could relate to what came from you. So, uh, so I think there's a, a million ways to approach how you create a business or a nonprofit or, or a venture. And, and there's always a blend of your own 
and what the world wants, ultimately, if you're going to succeed. But, but you can now make choices about, oh, well, I get emails and they wish I'd do more of that. And then you go with, you know, you listen to the polls and then you're probably going downhill. But you got to be careful because maybe you get some that, well, that person's right. I will. And you can try things. You know, it's a podcast much more fluid than writing a book. Once it's done, it's on the shelf and it's history. You know, when I teach my Zoom classes, every time I'm just now going to start my third one. And every time I'm like, well, you know, maybe I should try this. Or maybe, and I get people saying, you should try it. And sometimes I say, no, that, that's really not me. <laughs> I won't work, you know. Other times say, well, okay, I'll try it. Other times, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that, you know, next class. Uh, so um, stay fluid, you know, stay adaptable. But you got to be true to yourself. Hey, you go, I remember when I first I went to like the synagogue with my Jewish friends and the rabbi said something, we all die alone. And I remember going home saying, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, a lot of people I know, their, their husband or wife and the kids were with them when they died. But what he really meant is whatever you might go on to after life, if anything, you're going alone. And, and you are, I always say, hey, every night you got to look yourself in the mirror. Every night you got to look yourself in the mirror. And, and only you know if you're being true to yourself. And if you aren't, it's lost. You know, it, it's over with. I mean, if, if, you, if you can't. You know, I, I guess there are limits on that. Like if yourself is this evil, violent sociopath, then I'd rather you not be yourself. But, but for most people, most people in the world are well-intentioned. I always say all over the world, the one thing I saw in common, every country I've been to, is that people's main goal is to make a life, better life for their kids. And that's universal. And I don't care what religion, what race, people just want a better life for their kids. And people are good overall. The number of crooks I've met in, the, in life are incredibly few, you know. Of course, it only takes one or two to mess up everything, but, um, yeah. But, yes, be true to yourself. Hey, what you're doing is working. If it stops working someday, you'll, you'll adapt, you know. How do people connect with you, and what do you have coming up? And can you tell us a little bit more about the classes, and different ways that people? Uh, yeah, yeah, those? well, um, uh, one of the things is uh, um, lawyers study history. That's all they do. You know, they study precedents and all the Supreme Court cases or whatever. Even doctors study Hippocratic Oath. In most fields, you study the history. Certainly, if you study philosophy, you're going to study Aristotle and Socrates and all the dudes. Uh, business history, nobody studies. You Google business history. There's no website about it. It's just awful. And there's so much to be learned for it. And it costs our society billions of dollars to keep making the same mistakes and not learn from history, not be inspired by it. The best way to learn how to be an entrepreneur is study the lives of the great entrepreneurs. So I've written like 20 some biographies of great on Walt Disney and all that. And that led me uh, four, uh, two and a half years ago, really, with three friends to start the American Business History Center. So it's AmericanBusinessHistory.org, free weekly newsletter where we've done like 130 of them. We just published our first book called Bedtime Business Stories. So you can just Google Gary Hoover, my name, or, or within Amazon, type in Gary Hoover, and you'll see a book, Bedtime Business Stories. That just came out last week. Uh, and that's a collection of all the stories off the website. So they're free if you go to the website. But if you love books like I do, printed books, uh, uh, it's, a, it's easier to carry on an airplane and read in bed and everything. Um, and then I'm starting in January and all this information is at AmericanBusinessHistory.org. Um, uh, in January 11th, I start the first ever, as far as I can tell, online course in American business history. So it'll be four sessions every Tuesday night for an hour and a half, starting January 11th. And, um, uh, and I'm going to go through the whole evolution of American business history, how we got to where we are today, what were all the changes, all the trends, the difference in the whole types of industries that grew and fell, what we can learn from that. And it'll be a discussion with the students an hour and a half every Tuesday night. Beforehand, they'll have to read, I don't know, an hour or two of articles and then talk about what they learned from them, but all free articles online and stuff. So, um, but AmericanBusinessHistory.org, and, and we really, and we're making good progress. Our web page views, page views are running like four or five times what they were a year ago. Our number of subscribers to the free new weekly newsletter is way up. 
And uh, I also have a website called Hoover's World. There I cover more than just history, but I don't write a weekly newsletter. And I can be reached. My email address is uh, my name without the E-R, G-A-R-Y-H-O-O-V at msn.com, as in Microsoft Network. Uh, but you can also go to the AmericanBusinessHistory.org and hit contact button. That comes right to me. I'm, e I'm easy to find. I've got uh, 250 YouTube videos, including entrepreneurship lessons. If you Google, I'm, I'm kind of all over the internet. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next time.